Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Livia Scott. Oh, wow, that's the way it is. And I was like, yep. And I unfriended him and did a happy jig. That and more. But before that, how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? I mean, would that be Nirvana or what? No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. Well, now you can with Stamps.com. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during a busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You save money with stamps.com, too. I mean, get exact postage the instant you need it. Even special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Fantagram behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Delusional. These are three funny stories. Every now and then we like to just, you know, go pure funny. I mean, it's not to say that these three stories today don't have a lot of heart and soul, but there will be a lot of laughs. Now, I do want to apprise everyone of the Fern eventuality. Uh, In last week's episode, I explained that sometimes when I do these shows out on the road, a cute guy will approach after the show, and I won't know whether he's straight or not, whether I should offer my number or ask for his. And when we did our show in D.C. a couple weeks ago, a fella named Fern proved to be just such a case. I said in last week's episode, you know, I got too shy, and I was afraid the whole thing might have turned into the Fern Imbroglio. But 
It turns out Fern heard the episode right away and emailed, and he has a girlfriend. Guys, Fern could not have been sweeter and more gracious, and it was just very charming. So we can't quite say it was the Fern abomination, but it was certainly not the Fern colonoscopy. (laughs) So crisis averted for the time being, but in the future, guys, cute guys who come up to me after these shows, just say a little something that tips me off, you know, where you're coming from, what team you're playing for, something like, oh, I'll tell you, but, 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 then I'll get it. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from me live in Austin a little while back. It's been a while since we've featured a story on the show by me, but before that, Livia Scott, holy cow. I don't think we've ever had Livia on the show before, and she is one of the most talented people in New York City. Uh, You can find her on Twitter at Livia Love or just online at Livia-Land.com. Among other things, she does hilarious sketch comedy at places like the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. But here she is now at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn with a story we call All That Jizz. Um, my, my story is like somewhat serious, but uh, before I, I started, I, I do want to just ask something. Um, are there any guys here in the audience tonight who have a trust fund and are also like in an old timey bluegrass band? <laughs> You know, like maybe you play like like a banjo or like an authentic jug. Um, the the reason I ask is um, I'm really horny and I want to have sex tonight. And the only way that I can come is if um, a guy with a trust fund who's also in an old timey bluegrass band with like a banjo or an authentic jug corrects me about something. You know, like, um, actually, um, jizz! <laughs> Just putting it out there. All right, so, uh, every woman I know uh, has had a life-changing experience with a delusional man. Or 12. <laughs> Work! <laughs> <laughs> And for the, the worst of them in these cases um, do so much havoc to her spirit that she essentially has to like crawl through the, the emotional sewage of Shawshank <laughs> for like a year and a half at least before 
coming through the other side of it and being like, oh my God, I'm not garbage. <laughs> I've just been going through the garbage and the horseshit of the delusional man. And, um, you know, let's just hope that we as a nation don't do that to ourselves. <laughs> J 2016. <laughs> so uh, tonight I will tell you the story of um, one particularly special delusional man who came into my life. And I think many of you, particularly women, will relate to this story and hopefully enjoy it. And I'm um, out of respect for this man's privacy. We're going to call him Jizz. Yes. <laughs> Out of respect. His name isn't really Jizz, but I'm going to call him that to be nice. Uh, when I was in college, I went to see a band play, and a friend of mine introduced me to the lead singer. This was Jizz. And um, he had these big brown eyes and this like shaggy brownish reddish hair and like an aquiline nose and like kind of a full mouth and I was just like shit <laughs> you are cute and um then it, it, and also he was sort of shy in person but he was like very ferocious on stage and the combination was just very you know damn jizz you'll you know <laughs> so then we met, and there was this very intense connection between the two of us that wasn't just attraction. It was like one of those things that, you know, even if you just meet a stranger briefly and you just like, you're not necessarily even attracted to them or anything, you're just like, did we know each other in a past life? You just sort of like feel something with certain people. And he and I definitely had that in addition to this attraction. And we just kind of knew something was going to happen between us, and it did. Um, over the span of about a year and a half, Jizz and I became very close friends. <laughs> I'm totally committing to Jizz, so just get used to it. His name's Jizz. Uh, he and I became very close friends, and although we were attracted to each other, we didn't really do anything because, or rather, I couldn't do anything because I had a boyfriend back home. During this very intense time, this year and a half friendship, Jizz professed to be in love with me. He really encouraged me to leave my boyfriend for him. And he wrote me love songs that were just like, <laughs> this, you know, it was pretty intense stuff. And I did break up with my boyfriend after a year and a half of this friendship with Jizz, um, because we were growing apart, just as you do as young college kids, you know, long distance, but also because I really fell in love with Jizz. So, you know, that's kind of what happened. And when I returned to school, this guy and I had never even kissed, like nothing. We returned to school, and we pretty much had sex, like right away. It was a very intense experience. It was really special. And then I never heard from him again nothing like after a year and a half of like the love songs and break up with your boyfriend I'm so in love with you and like all this stuff we sleep together nothing it was fucked up so six months later 
I see him on campus. We didn't have the same classes or anything, so it was actually sort of unusual to run into each other. And I saw him, and I confronted him about this, and I was like, what the fuck, you know? In addition to us having sex also, we were close friends. I don't understand this. And he explained to me that he was in love with me and all this stuff, and he was really freaked out after we had sex, and he just kind of like, you know, ran away. And he asked me to let him back into my life. And I very warily over the course of a month like kind of agreed and then we became friends again and then over time he and I ended up sleeping together again. And guess what happened? Never heard from him again. So, over the years after experiencing like sort of an assortment of guys doing similar things, although on a much less intense level. I mean, how many women in here have slept with a guy and then never heard from him again? I mean, it's pretty common, you know. Um, And how many have like gone on one date with a guy and then he's been like, I don't want anything serious. And you're like, like, calm down. I know you can all relate to this. And uh, how many of you dated Steve from Blue's Clues and had to listen to him complain in his million-dollar loft about how nobody takes me seriously as an actor because I'm Steve from Blue's Clues? Because I did, can you tell? Anyway, I just started seeing that a lot of these guys are like trying to get their power on by like using women to get that power on, you know? And it just made me go, hmm. And it gave me a little insight into jizz and what happened there. Years later, 2011, I log on to Facebook and I have a friend request from jizz. Mm hmm. And of course, I accept, rub my hands, and set my motherfucking trap. Now, every now and then he comments on my stuff, and you know, I have to say, I was surprised at how his life turned out. It was very suburban, and he was married and had a kid. He wasn't doing music at all, and it just seemed very kind of beige. Um, and so, anyway, I click like or whatever, and then, but then I wait until we're in a thread where there are a lot of his college friends, a lot of our mutual college friends, and then I type this. You know, jizz. It's pretty funny how we're Facebook friends now. After we were friends for a year and a half, you progressed to being in love with me. We slept together and I never heard from you again. Then when I gave you another chance, I did. We resumed our friendship, slept together, and then I never heard from you again. (laughs) (laughs) Then he goes, oh, wow, that's the way it is. And I was like, yep. And I unfriended him and did a happy jig. Do you think it's over? No. LOL, Jizz emails me three years later. Subject, an apology. 
again, the theme for tonight is, ladies and gentlemen, delusion. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's a hundred million thousand other things. I want slash have slash need to say to, and I don't know if you have any desire to hear them, but this is the first thing. I am sorry, deeply, sincerely, sorry. I'm sorry I didn't call you. I don't know why I didn't call you. I have been a stupid, dumb man for many years, and I'd like to think I'm not as stupid or dumb now as I was years ago, but that's no excuse. <laughs> oh my God, yes. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that you were, as of our last Facebook correspondence, <laughs> still angry. About that ever since because it was so upsetting to me. In recent months, I started going back into college era journals. (laughs) (laughs) And I basically found you written on almost every page. A thousand vivid memories started flooding my brain and I've been feeling like a jackass. (laughs) I'm sorry to say it's taken me so long to say this. I've been trying to figure out what to say so long. Seriously, a long time we're talking about here. what I should have said straight out was I'm sorry I'm sorry I've not had you as a friend above all else this is the thing I most regret you are a brilliant amazing inspiring woman and I would have loved to have seen you blossom and grow And this is in italics. (laughs) The following word is in italics. Become. (laughs) Oh my God. When I think about you, your absence looms larger than anybody's. It always has to not know you to not be able to celebrate and cheer you on. That's been an absolute killer on me. That's on me. I failed you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have an ulterior motive here. I don't really know what happens next. 
Honestly, I would love to get to know you again. Mm. Motherfucker divorced. Okay, like that's why we're getting this email. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if he is. I don't give a fuck, but like, <laughs> it's just so funny to me. <laughs> Honestly, I would love to get to know you again, but I felt rather than simply lurking in the background and not actually saying anything, I should be upfront with you. You deserve that. You deserve way more than that. And frankly, I don't even know where to begin in that regard. I hope you'll accept my apology. Jizz. years later. <laughs> My reply. <laughs> uh, hey. <laughs> I haven't replied because I haven't had time. Replying is nowhere on the to-do list of my life. I mean, ugh, just your email is ridiculous. A simple apology would have been way better than this long and weirdly masturbatory redundant nonsense. You're trying so hard to be special. You obviously have a strangely grandiose opinion of yourself and I haven't thought about you in years. Like, when you friended me on Facebook, I was like, oh, cool, I'm gonna enjoy this, and I did, because I was hurt for a long time. My head got fucked up, but after a while, I was just like, okay, he's a chode. Now, for those of you who don't know what a chode is, Women, women and men, but particularly women, I think, like to uh, call like men who are like annoying and you know turds, you know, like douchebags. To me, I just don't think it, that's dismissive enough. A chode is the area between a man's sack and his asshole. Some people call it the taint, but I prefer chode. So okay, he's he's a chode, like so many chodes and my self-esteem took a hit because I didn't know what I was capable of accomplishing. Whatever, lots of women go through these unremarkable chodes in life who are subconsciously motivated by the need to feel like they're special by hurting women. Yes. Did y'all get that? There's some chattering. Say it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I think there's maybe some chode discussion, which is cool. I'm happy to go back. Say it again. I'm happy to go back, no problem at all. Okay, so he's a chode. He's a chode like so many chodes and my self-esteem took a hit because I didn't know what I was capable of accomplishing. Whatever, lots of women go through these unremarkable chodes in life who are subconsciously motivated by the need to feel like they're special by hurting women. And that's pretty much the summation of it. Yeah, and the reason I'm replying now is because I read your email on stage last night because I didn't feel like preparing anything. I just read it. 
And everyone groaned and laughed. Oh, and please don't reply or contact me ever again. It'll just annoy, it'll just annoy me and I'm busy. Blossoming and becoming? Good Lord, ha ha ha. All right now, I feel a little bad. See a shrink if you're not already and work on getting over yourself, okay? Message still stands, do not reply to me, please. Adios. But, I already sent that, but just between us, it got me thinking that I was being too harsh on him because after all, I I really wasn't angry with him anymore. Um, I was just annoyed that like I kind of had to deal with it and I just wanted to put it behind me peacefully So I closed with this. I, I wrote him another message about five minutes later that said this Okay, jizz I feel a little bad now Everything I said was true And I needed to be done with this because I suspected that you've probably been thinking that the reason I hadn't responded was because I was still angry and hurt, which isn't the case at all. I just truly have not been caring about this. The bottom line is that I'm sure you feel terribly about hurting me and I forgive you. However, this email is not respectful of me. It is self-indulgent. You don't even say, dear Livia, are you serious? So, for the sake of the women in your life, currently and going forward, I needed to let you know what was up. I stand by everything I said, and I think you need to get real with the things that I mentioned. I wish you well. It's never too late to be a better person. I know from personal experience that digging deep and making amends is possible, provided you are truly respectful of others and honest with yourself. The message still stands that I don't want to hear from you, so please respect that. Take care. And that was it. So that was the end of my correspondence with Jizz. So, you know, I'm sort of left with what to say to you guys. You know what I mean? Like, I feel at peace with it. Um, I I don't, I'm sure I'm never going to hear from this guy again, and that's fine. But I just wonder, like, I mean, so many people here connected with that delusional email. Like, how many of you have these people in your lives who are just so fucking, like, insanely out of touch with how, like, dumb and stupid their choices are and how dumb and stupid they sound, right? And, like, wouldn't it be nice if you could just, like, say something to them or, like, just give them a nice towel snap in the ass in front of, like, a whole bunch of people and then just be like... This is you. This is you. It's tough. But it makes it easier when you don't really care about the person. (laughs) So yeah, in conclusion, it just feels good to be on this stage with you and share this with you because that was a really hard experience for me for many years. And I really am like way, way, way beyond it. I feel really good, and it just is very much like the cherry on top of the Sunday too, <laughs> to share it with you and have you all enjoy it, too, and to get it, right? Yeah. You all have these people in your lives, particularly the ladies. Thank you very much. I'm Livia Scott. Thank you.
when I grew up, I was very, very aware that I kind of wanted to be a creative artist of some kind. I didn't know exactly what. But man, I did so many odd jobs before I figured out I could do this one. I guess my horrible job history kind of starts when I was a freshman at NYU. I decided, oh no, I don't want to go back to Cincinnati, Ohio for the summer, right? Oh, everyone else was going home, but I was like, oh no, not Ohio. Oh my God, that was the year that two men were arrested for being found holding hands in a car, right? Not my kind of town. (laughs) So I decided, no, 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 no. I'm 19 years old, but I want to prove that I can make it as an artistic type in this town. So I got myself the most respectable job I could find. Door-to-door dictionary salesman. (laughs) Now, in my defense... The classified ad for the job that had been in the Village Voice, it had so many exciting words in it that sounded so artistic and creative. Words like performance and script. The only six words it didn't include were door-to-door dictionary salesman. (laughs) So... There I am, I put together this suit from various pieces of linen in the costume room at the theater department at my school, kind of put together like what looked more like Charlie Chaplin than an appropriate suit. I go into this, it's this hole-in-the-wall office space in Chinatown, and there's this guy smoking a cigarette who looks a lot like Frank Zappa, only a version of Frank Zappa who has lost the will to live. (laughs) And he's addressing eight of us, like young, starving 20-somethings. And he says, you kids ever heard of Madonna? (laughs) It was 1989. (laughs) We had. (laughs) Then he threw this six-inch hardbound book on a table with a big thump. And he said, well, I bet you never thought you'd find her in the... Dictionary. (laughs) We're like, whoa! (laughs) It turns out that Frank was teaching us the beginning of the very script that we were supposed to take into the offices and storefronts of Manhattan that very afternoon. He printed it out. That's how we were supposed to start the damn thing. The very first place I walked into... The woman, the receptionist at this office, she was like, oh my God, oh my God, hold on a second. Hey guys, get in here, you're not gonna believe this. This poor fella's trying to sell us a dictionary. (laughs) All her coworkers came in and they found the script that I was gonna use, it was tucked into the book. So they started acting like they were selling it to each other. Like, uh, every good business needs good spelling. (laughs) Well, by the end of that day, and it was a sweltering hot day, I hadn't made a single sale. And I was, you know, the, the wind was going out of me. I got to the Flatiron Building. And you know, the thing about New York City is there's a lot of buildings that are very impressive on the outside. And in the inside... I knocked on a door, and this man with a turban opened it, and 
I, I saw his office space was very tiny and made all the tinier by the fact that there were these rows and rows and rows of huge stacks of VHS porn. That was his business, right? He was like a wholesaler of VHS porn. I'm like, oh, God, this is so weird, kind of squeezing my way in here, and I accidentally knocked one of the stacks over. And then a three-foot-wide river of cockroaches streamed out of his toaster oven and shimmered up the walls. If he had been hiding the Ark of the Covenant behind that toaster oven, no one would ever go near enough to find it. So I think we can pretty much assume it was there. I, I, I was so flustered, but I gave my script, and at the end he was like, you know what, you got a great point. A good business needs good spelling. Can you bring me one of those tomorrow? And I was like, fuck, you mean I have to come back to this place? Ugh. After a week of that, I said, I can't handle this. I bought myself a plane ticket and went back to Cincinnati. But after my junior year at NYU, I was like, I'm ready to try it again. Get a job in New York and stay here. So I thought, you know, the Museum of Modern Art, that's a kind of artsy place now, isn't it? Where a creative person could do uh, something. So I walked in and I said, do you have any jobs? They were like, yeah, we need a guard. I was like, take me, take me. Now, museum guard is a very strange job because you're standing in silence for hours and hours on end, surrounded by these icons that are kind of staring at you and glowing and after a while they seem to really speak to you or at least they did me because I did that job stoned out of my mind I would have one joint before clocking in in the morning and then another at lunch and I would just like walk around that place in a daze I remember one time I'm guarding this room, and there's this giant Leenbrook sculpture called Standing Youth. And this Standing Youth is completely nude, so it's right down my alley. My kind of art. And I was standing there thinking, oh my god, it's been so long since anyone walked in here. I wonder what it would be like to fondle his balls. So a moment later, there I am, just kind of massaging away at these huge stone gonads. When a couple and their two little girls walked right in on me. I, I was like, oh, I, like pretending I was just dusting. <laughs> Albeit without a duster. And the kind of dusting that looks a lot more like cupping a dude's balls. <laughs> and then finally, there was the time that I became so transfixed, again, stoned out of my mind, with this Matisse wax sculpture that was behind a window. Uh, now, I really wanted to get a much closer look at a detail of it, right? So I'm like, wow, what is that? What is that? And I slammed my face right into the window. And this time, the gallery was full. 
So an entire room full of people turns around and looks, and they're all like, wait, did the guard just hurl his face into the wall over there? <laughs> it turns out I was not cut out for something as complex as standing in a room. So after college, I was very lucky because the state happened. The state got our own series on MTV. But it turned out that even that wasn't quite the perfect fit, right? It was wonderful while it lasted, but I'll tell you one thing, the competition in that group, the rivalry, it really got to me. It beat me up and bruised me sometimes. And I, I left that group with a lot of stage fright, actually. So I thought, oh, God damn, when am I going to find the right thing to do? But I remember just after the state broke up, someone came up to me and they said, you know what? You should try catering. Because <laughs> it's a performance of sorts and it's mindless. You'd be great at mindless things. So I took it up. I gave it a try, right? Now, my very first night of catering, holy shit. I got to see the shock of how the other 1% lives. It was some Republican bigwig had rented out, for the first time, privately, the entire Metropolitan Opera House. And it was for a wedding dinner. So the lobby was the reception, and they had guys like, dressed like Robin Hood with like four-foot-long trumpets who were like, to let you know dinner was served. Everyone walks up the aisle. The stage is like all these opera sets that keep opening up and the tables are swiveling around and there's monkeys in cages. There's topless women dressed as Marie Antoinette and you were supposed to pick the food off of the toothpicks that were attached to their butts. It was crazy. The craziest thing of all was that there were 10 gorgeous, big, muscly, black guys who were wearing nothing but baby oil and loincloths and they were all holding spears around the perimeter of the dinner and we learned that they'd been given instruction by the catering crew that they would not get paid unless they remained absolutely mute. So it was that kind of demoralizing, what the fuck, right? Joe Latrulio was a member of the state, and he, too, was trying out catering with me that first week. And at the end of it, he tore off his bow tie, and he said, Kevin, no one with any self-respect would do this. So I did it for another four years. <laughs> now, here's the thing. There were two things that were actually rather really appealing to me about catering. And that is that every catering team always has these two things at the ready. One, oh, guys who are in their early 20s who happen also to be models or dancers, and booze. So I had a goal for every catering gig. Get drunk and blow a coworker. <laughs> I had this thing that I did. I loved it. It was, you know the rush that some people get when they're sneaking something like, you know, people talk about when they do shoplifting and gets this adrenaline running and I got that feeling from swigging hard liquor from the bottle right in front of guests. <laughs> 
what I would do is I would just kind of like saunter past a, uh, a pillar or just do a little pirouette, just do a little 180 and just go swing. And I would end up fucking plastered at these things. I was never caught. I don't know how, you know, you're kind of a nobody there, right? They look right through you. I remember I was at the birthday party, the 70th birthday party of William F. Buckley's wife. And I had so much Dom Perignon right in front of the Buckley clan that I ended up passing out in their bushes <laughs> after rimming a coworker. But I was so proud because he also danced for Alvin Ailey. I mean, that if you want to rim someone, that's your guy. So the catering captains actually by that time just kind of, you know, got such a kick out of me that they snuck me away. They had four waiters each take a limb and sneak me off to a getaway car. But the worst part was, I mean, I had just, I, I was still on TV from reruns, right? So I was getting recognized left and right while I was offering people food. The worst was at the Grammys. I was pouring champagne at the Grammys, and Sarah McLaughlin walked into the room, and, and, and right as she was walking in, Aretha Franklin walked in, and Sarah was like, oh my God, I, blah, 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 blah. Aretha, can I get you some champagne? So they come up to the bar, and Sarah looks up at me, and she says, oh my God, what are you doing here? And Aretha looks at her like, huh? And she says, oh, <laughs> He's a very successful comedian. <laughs> and Aretha looks at me and says, Mm-hmm. <laughs> I took it as the ultimate sign that something needed to change. I remember... <laughs> I was walking around the streets of Brooklyn one night, just crying and literally calling out to God, help me find the right fit. You know, what is my voice? Well, when I was 35, something profound happened. I got this email from a place called Media Bistro. It was a place that taught people how to write this kind of writing, that kind of writing, all kinds of different writing. And they said, hey, you've written a lot of sketch comedy. Would you teach a class for, you know, young people who are interested in learning how to write sketch comedy? Well, I still had so much stage fright and so much insecurity after, you know, things going so wrong in the stage and all that, that I, I was like, oh my God, can I do this? And I was like, of course I can do this. So I tried. And the first night, I'm looking at these 15 kids in front of me, and I said, okay, motherfuckers, let's get started. And they all laughed. They were just like amused by my way of being. And then later in that same night, I said something like, you know, when you're writing a sketch, just start brainstorming on some of the weirdest shit you've done. Like, for example, one time, I blew one of those transit workers in the subway system in New York. You know, the guys with the orange and yellow jumpsuits. It was kind of ironic because that's what he was wearing. I was the one on my knees, but I just returned from a catering gig, so I was in a tux. <laughs> Again, they loved it. They were like, our teacher is so unusual. <laughs>
And then one point at the, at the toward the end of that first evening, someone said, "Was it fun being in the state?" And I said, "Oh my God, was it? I don't remember ever having so much fun packed into so many days." However. There were times that the mean jokes and the backstabbing and the all the politics, the power playing, and all that got so cutthroat that I remember one day I came home from MTV and I just lay on the floor of my apartment and my whole body was just convulsing from my crying. And I looked around and I noticed, oh my God, they were seriously moved. And suddenly I realized, holy shit, I'm in front of a room full of people here. And all of a sudden I feel like I can talk about the filthiest things going on in my life and the most absurdist sort of stuff that are part of that part of my sense of humor. And I can open up and sincerely reveal some of the most sensitive stuff in front of them. I was so moved by being able to do that with those guys that I decided I was going to appear in their class show wearing only a jock strap. <laughs> but you can probably imagine why it was that that one odd job ended up meaning so much to me. Because if I hadn't been in that situation, finding out that I could be any part of myself in front of a group of people by just talking about my actual life experience, if I'd never landed that job, I might never have realized I could do this one. Thank you. was dreaming, sailing away, let my heart lead the way, the truth is I was younger than today, now that I know I belong, hey. I was wondering, but I found on my way. My heart was not afraid But I've been through bad times And I found my way Oh, and you found me And now I know Oh, 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 oh I, I belong This is Risk. This is Bobby Bazzini behind me now. And we just heard from me before me. We heard just a little bit of Jets Overhead. Now, folks, I do want to remind you of something I spoke of a few episodes ago. And that is that you could do us here at Risk a huge favor, a real gift to us. If you go to podsurvey.com slash risk and fill out a quick survey 
that will go to the company that helps hook us up with advertisers to make sure that we're hooking up with advertisers that would appeal to you. Now, at podsurvey.com slash risk, it's completely anonymous. Your information is not going to be sold to anyone. And it's very easy. It's, you know, five minutes, bam, 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 it's done. And you will be entered into a contest to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So podsurvey.com slash risk. Now, our final storyteller today is one of my favorite people in the world, Mr. John F. O'Donnell, who has a wonderful show that he is now a part of, a TV series called Redacted Tonight. You can find it on rt.com or hulu or youtube it's fantastic political comedy so very necessary at this particular point in history here he is now at the risk live show in washington dc it's john f o'donnell with a story we call mission improbable Theater, man, pretty cool. Wow, this place is beautiful. You guys are beautiful. I'm beautiful. The other storytellers were beautiful, right? Pretty awesome. All right, so this story. All right, man. Okay, so, <laughs> all right. Woo! <laughs> it's, uh, it's August 2008, right? And I'm frantically running through the streets of Dublin, Ireland, and I'm carrying a, a black duffel bag with documents in it, right? And I got my passport and my cell phone, and I'm terrified for my life, yeah? Because um, a couple days before, I had to escape from America because I was about to be indefinitely detained without charge by the government because I found out about some like high like level super confidential information right like I found out that post World War II the CIA collaborated with the SS Nazis like the worst Nazis to get information to better spy on Russia for the beginning of the Cold War and I found out that Prescott Bush George W. Bush's grandfather worked for a company that helped finance the Nazis during the 30s and 40s and he used that fortune that he made in order to start the political like dynasty that became the Bush family, right? And from that information, why are you into that? All right, and uh, <laughs> JK, JK, JK. And uh, from that information, I was able to piece together, right, that contemporarily in 2008 when this was happening, the CIA was in fact working with underground descendants of the Third Reich, like on the DL, like super chill, because what was happening at the time in 2008 is everybody, normal folks, were having this epiphany, they're having this evolution of consciousness where they were realizing that the connectivity of life was a real thing, and that one person's happiness and a value was connected necessarily with the happiness and value of everybody else, vice versa, in the world. And if this thought became and reached a critical 
critical mass, what was going to happen was like nation states and certain kind of power structures and things like that would become obsolete. The CIA would come obsolete, man. You know what I mean? So they needed to assassinate me because I knew about their plot, right? <laughs> Woo! But don't worry, you guys. I wasn't alone. The IRA and Bono from U2 had my back, baby. Uh-huh, don't you worry. So either that was happening or maybe I was, you know, in the throes of a full-blown psychotic manic episode due to bipolar one disorder. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Tomato, tomato. I don't know. I don't know. Tough to tell. Tomato, tomato. I don't know. Uh, hard to tell. Uh, now, probably the manic depression. Probably. Probably that one. Now... As we proceed with this story, I want you guys to know everything I'm telling you. I want you to try to understand. I truly and deeply believed all of this stuff more passionately and powerfully and painfully than anything I've ever believed in my entire life. I felt like I was freaking Jason Bourne or some shit, all right? But like Jason Bourne, like right after he'd been dipped into a bathtub filled with liquid LSD, you know what I mean? <laughs> Things were, okay, all right. So here's the deal. So I'm running through Dublin, man, right? I'm running through Dublin, and it's like such a beautiful day, you know? It's like a perfect day. The sun is out. It's so nice. It's like in the 70s, you know? Everything's super chill. Just families walking around, you know? There's people sitting outside pubs, drinking pints. There's street performers playing, like, traditional music. There's one of those dudes, one of those statue guys. You know, the statue guys that just, like, stand still, and people give him money for standing still or whatever, you know? And I'm like, why are you getting... And he was, like, getting... I'm like, why are you getting... He's just standing still, man! I've been writing for years! So he's standing there. He's just like a leprechaun, but in, like, all painted in, like, bright silver, you know what I mean? He's just standing there. You know? But who am I to judge? Like, at the time, I was wearing, like, straight-up combat boots, son, right? So I'm rocking the combat boots, and I have, like, uh, uh, I have green uh, khaki... I have green uh, cargo pants on, but I rolled them up above my knees so they were, like, shorts, right? And then I'm wearing a belt with an American flag belt buckle, you know? Because in case the CIA and the Nazis get me, i got to pretend to be a patriotic, obedient American. You know what I'm saying? Come on, I'm cool, I'm cool. And then uh, I was wearing, like, a light blue T-shirt uh, that just said uh, gay on it, you know? Because I thought that was very edgy and forward-thinking, you know? I dig your style, Jacob, all right! You know, and, uh, yeah, you too, Kevin! All right, go, 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 right? So that, and then the shirt also was, like, half-covered in wine because I spilled, like, red wine on myself the night before. And then I was wearing a brown bow tie, you guys. You can't wear a brown bow tie with just a t-shirt. That's a weird look, man. That's a weird look, man. And then on top of that, I'm wearing like these brown, ugly, oversized glasses, but one of the stems was missing, you know? So it's just sort of hanging on there. And then on my head, I was wearing a kufi, all right? A kufi, you know, it's like a spiritual head covering, like it was from Cambodia. And I don't know how I done got that shit. I don't know how I done got's net, all right? So that's what I'm rocking. So who am I to judge the statue man? Who am I to judge a statue man? All right, so I'm running. I'm running through, through Grafton Street. That's like the city center of Dublin, man. I'm running through. And then I get to St. Stephen's Green. Ooh, it's like at the top of Grafton Street. It's beautiful, bucolic park. But I, everybody's just like having a good day. But I'm like, the sirens in the distance. They're coming to get me. You know, right? So I'm just like running, 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 running. And then I look at my cell phone. I'm like, oh, shit. This thing's tapped, son. This thing is tapped. I just remembered it came out a few years ago in the news that the Bush administration forced a AT&T and Verizon Wireless to allow them to wirelessly, illegally wiretap a whole swath of Americans' cell phones, and clearly they've got mine. Oh, shit. <laughs> and right as I'm freaking out about this, I hear, I hear this, I hear, please, 
Please help me, please. Do you have any money, please? I'm hungry. I'm selling uh, roses for two euros, right? And I look down, and there's this 12-year-old Serbian beggar girl there. And she's got the scarf on her head. She's kind of disheveled, a little bit dirty. These piercing green eyes. And she's just like, please. And she had these plastic roses she was selling for two euros. She's like, please, please, do you have any money? I, uh, I have these roses, you know? And she was holding a coffee cup that had a little bit of change in it. So like, I look at her, look at my phone look at the coffee cup, and I just drop my phone in the coffee cup and run away, you know what I mean? I'm like, I gotta get out of here. Which in retrospect is kind of insensitive to the Serbian beggar girl if I really thought that the CIA and the Nazis were tracking that thing, you know what I mean? Like, that would be really fucking weird for her and really kind of mean. Plus, a little side note, that phone had about 500 phone numbers in it at the time. I'm a stand-up comedian doing comedy for a long time. One of the phone numbers in there was Patton Oswalt's phone number. Um, pretty famous dude, pretty famous comedian. And I just like to like imagine that of all the numbers, she like scrolled down and called him, you know? And that phone conversation would be like, he'd be like, oh, hey, John F. O'Donnell, guy I met briefly three years ago at a comedy festival in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've been waiting for you to call me ever since I gave you my number because you said you can get me some weed after the show. But... Uh, <laughs> Then you couldn't get any weed, so you were too embarrassed to text me, and uh, you've never used this number ever. You were at a comedy festival in Portland, Oregon. How could you not score weed at a comedy festival in Portland, Oregon, bro? And then, like, the Serbian beggar girl would be like, uh, you want one of these roses for two euro? Right? But I don't know. So, so then I keep running, I keep running. I gotta keep moving, right? And now I get through the park and now I'm in Marion Square, right? It's this beautiful part of Dublin, very fancy, all these very nice like uh, row houses and different things like that, historical sites. And I'm just walking and I'm running and I'm slowing down. And then I see this old Irish man. He's about 20 feet away and he's walking towards me, right? This guy was like as traditional as it gets, like the paddy cap, the whole tweed thing, you know, like white hair, big, big, crazy, fluffy white eyebrows, like two clouds just attached to his freaking forehead. <laughs> You know, it was beautiful. It was like out of a WB Yates poem or something like that, right? And guess what? I'm carrying my black duffel bag. He's carrying a bag that looks pretty fucking similar, son. Guess what? I've seen enough spy movies to know what's supposed to go down now. You know what I mean? The old bag exchange, you know? The old put down your bag, I'll put down mine, and we'll switch the bag thing. I get it. I get it. You're clearly with the IRA. You might even be Bono's uncle. I know what's going on here. All right, Bono's uncle. Okay, so we're walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this bag down. He's going to get these secure documents out of my hands. I'm going to get his bag, uh, which probably going to have something cool for me, like some cool disguise or something like that. Maybe like a fat suit. What? Maybe I get a cool fat suit, right? So I'm walking, walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. We get next to each other. I put my bag down, and he just keeps walking, you know? <laughs> he just keeps walking. And I get really angry, man. Like, really angry. I mean, think about it from my perspective, all right? I'm John F. O'Donnell in Ireland, just escaped the American government. I'm here to try to stop the CIA and the Nazis from killing me and killing all sorts of people to not allow our evolution of consciousness to happen in order for a heaven-on-earth scenario to occur and making them obsolete and stuff like that. And this guy, this old Irish dude, is not even going to do the bag switcheroo thing with me? Are you kidding me? And I'm the asshole? I'm the asshole here? You know what I mean? Oh, come on, Bono's uncle. Why have you forsaken me, right? You know? But before I yelled at the dude, I noticed across the street that there was another Irish guy and he was standing right outside the Marion Hotel, which is one of Ireland's fanciest hotels. And he was like a clean-cut dude, clean-shaven, wearing a very nice suit, and he had a rolled-up newspaper. And he was gesturing to me to come into the 
into the hotel. And I was like, oh, I got you. I got you. We're good. We're good. You're lucky. You're lucky, old man. That could have gotten weird, but I'll play it cool. I'll play it cool. It's probably some sort of test to see if I could play it cool. All right, we're cool. All right, so... So I go across the street, and after he gestured to me, he walked inside. So I go across the street, walk kind of steps. I walk into the hotel, look to my left. Like there behind the counter, there's a, there's a woman who works there. She gives me the old head nod. You know, I give her the old head nod back. Then I walk in, go into the lobby. There's this table there. The dude who had the newspaper, he was like, he's sitting there reading his newspaper now. I sit down next to him across the table that's sitting there too. There's these very, very like uh, old, old people and they're dressed to the nines, a couple men, a couple women, you know what I mean? And they're speaking in some language that I don't know. So I interpret that it is German for sure, you know? <laughs> And I was like, oh, I know what this is. These are clearly, you know, Nazis who escaped down to Argentina after World War II, obviously. And they're dressed so nicely because they took all that gold. They have all that stolen Jewish gold, you know what I mean? They've been using their Nazi gold to look so nice. And they've come out of hiding back to Ireland because they heard I was here. And they want to find out about me to either repent to me or kill me. I can't be sure, but I certainly can't let them know who I am, right? But at the same time, I have to let the dude sitting next to me know that I'm the John F. O'Donnell he's looking for. So how do I do it? I open my bag and I remove one of my documents. What is the document? Uh, it's the book Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Tool. <laughs> Sensitive material, viewed guys. So here's what my documents were. It was that book. It was a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. <laughs> oh, you know, different perspective. <laughs> History from the perspective of those who didn't win. All right, go cool, that. And then also, it was Frederick Nietzsche's The Gay Science. And then also, it was Steve Martin's autobiography. What? <laughs> You never know when you're going to need that shit, all right? So, so I do that. So I'm like, okay, i got to prove to this guy that I'm the real John F. O'Donnell that he's looking for, but not let the old Nazis know that I'm that one too, right? So what do I do? I take the Confederacy of Dunces book, and I just do it on the table, and I slide it over in his direction. Just slide it on over, and he does nothing, right? I don't think he even saw it. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, uh, here's the thing. I'm O'Donnell. The author of that book is John Kennedy Tool. Okay, my father's law firm is called O'Donnell Kennedy. He's going to put the pieces together. I mean, he's going to figure, he's clearly going to figure it out. He doesn't do nothing, right? So I'm sitting there for a while. I'm like, okay, starting to feel freaked out here. I feel kind of exposed. I better go deeper into the hotel, all right? So I leave my bag there, leave my documents, okay? And then I go up to the second floor of the hotel. I go up and I walk all the way down the hall and there's a couch there. There's a sofa there. And I'm like, okay, I got to just chill. I got to just chill. I got to sit down. Okay, and then I'm like, all right. I gotta lay down, I, gotta, I, I know that I'm gonna get detained soon, but I have to you know, maintain my cover, I cannot break, I have to not let them know for sure that I'm the John F. O'Donnell they're looking for. So what I do is, I'm like, okay, take off my belt, put it underneath the couch uh, cushions, take off my, uh, my glasses, my koofy, take off my shoelaces for some reason, put everything, my ID, my passport's underneath there, everything, right? And then I just start laying down, like on the couch, and I'm totally convinced that like some sort of V for Vendetta black bag situation is gonna happen. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the film. Well, basically, like, the dissidents, like people would come in and put a black bag over their head and like take him away, you know? And I was really convinced, super terrified that was gonna happen to me, but I knew I couldn't reveal I was the real John F. O'Donnell, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to pretend to be a 16-year-old, you know, Colombian boy, clearly. I mean, clearly, that's the move. So out loud, I start like practicing my Spanish. I'm like, me llamo Juan Francisco. Yo soy de Colombia. Yo no soy John F. O'Donnell. Yo soy de Colombia. Me llamo Juan Francisco. Which is crazy, because my name's John Francis O'Donnell. All I could do is change it to Juan Francisco. It's pretty freaking close, man. Ah. 
<laughs> right? So I'm doing that. I'm like, Juan Francisco, hola, hola. Me llamo Juan Francisco, right? So like 15, 20 minutes uh, pass. And then nothing happens, right? So I get up and I'm walking down the hall and now I bump into uh, this, uh, this, uh, this Brazilian maid. She was working at the hotel and she was Brazilian. So she spoke Portuguese, not Spanish, but you know, I kind of spoke Spanish, you know, as you guys just clearly saw. And, uh, and you know, she spoke Portuguese. So I said to her something bizarre and weird. I said to her something like, paz y luz es la vía a cielo. <laughs> Which means peace and light is the way to heaven. But some, somehow she interpreted that as me saying, like, I locked myself out of my hotel room, right? So she opened a door to one of the rooms, you guys. Room 208. I will never forget that number. So now I'm in room 208. And this is, like, total validation that the IRA and Bono set this up for me. I'm like, oh, clearly they all just want me to chill, get off the grid for a while, let this whole CIA Nazi thing blow over, you know? Plus, I mean, there were pajamas laid out at the foot of the bed. How, how much more proof do I fucking need, you know? How much more proof do I need? I put, so I immediately put on the pajamas. For real. Uh, they were kind of tight. They were too small. But, I mean, how's Bono supposed to know my size? You know, I mean, how's Bono? He's a busy man. He's a busy man. Like, how's he supposed to know my size? I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it, right? So then what I do is I go to sleep for four hours in the bed. What? Yeah. And then I wake up, and I'm like, oh, I should probably call my mom. <laughs> I should probably call my mom. Oh, but I can't use my cell phone because I gave it to that Serbian beggar girl who's probably getting questioned by the CIA and the Nazis right now. Patton Oswalt's probably having to deal with some shit back in America, you know? And uh, so what I do is I call on the landline, the hotel line. I call my mom, and I'm like, hey, mom, how's it going? And she's like, John, are you okay? Like, what is, what is going on? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm staying in a hotel. And she's like, John, you know that you're manic right now. You know that you're in the throes of a, of a manic episode. You know, you, you've been through this. We're so worried about you. We so desperately didn't want you to go on this trip and we feel so powerless. And, and you really, please, please, please take care of yourself because we're so, so worried. And that's the thing about mania. You know, there's an exhilarating aspect to it, but there's so much more that is so terrifying and overwhelming. Like everything I've told you so far, I deeply believed and it's very, very scary. And the thing that is so treacherous about mania is that when you're in the throes of it, when I'm in the throes of mania, even though I've been manic before, gotten through it, have been able to acknowledge that and then try to figure out how to piece my life back together, uh, when you're in the throes of it, when I'm experiencing it, even if people I know, love, and trust are screaming in my face that I'm manic, I just can't accept it. I don't have that self-knowledge. I don't have that narrative uh, distance because I think I'm living my life at a higher level of awareness and they're just uh, calling me mentally ill so they can compartmentalize me and dismiss me so they don't have to change the way that they're living their life. And then there's this messed up epiphanal uh, moment that happens when I realize all these things that I believe so deeply and so passionately were bullshit. It was it's just bullshit. You're so, you become so embarrassed. And it's like, it's, it, it's, it's so hard to describe that level of pain and humiliation. It's as though I was like a, a lion who's been reduced to a worm who was tortured by the memory of what it was like to be that lion. Holy shit, that's poetic. I wrote that. It's freaking beautiful, right? So then, uh, so... So that's what's going on, you know, but I was, and my mom's trying to help me, but at this point in time, I just wasn't 
hearing it. And she's like, are you on your medication? And then I just go on this tirade on the phone to her about Big Pharma. I'm like, no, mom, I'm not taking my medication. Big Pharma don't care about us. They don't care about the people. They're not trying to help people. You know what? They're working with the CIA and the Nazis in order to numb people so we can't all live a higher level of consciousness in order to be one. And Jenny McCarthy might be onto something with the whole anti-vaxxer autism thing, you know? And my mom's like, oh, no. And then right as that happens, the people whose room it was walk in. What? No! And they freaked me out, but not nearly as much as I freaked them out. Oh, did I freak them out. They were like this like proper fancy British couple, like married in their 40s, and their teenage daughter, right? And I'm like, huh? And then the wife, she's like, excuse me, this is our room. And then she's like, and why are you wearing my daughter's pajamas, right? Ah, 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 oh. And so then I go, I go like this, I go like this, like this, I go, I go, no it's not, this is my room. I'm on the phone with my mom. Get the hell out of here. So they leave, cause that shit was terrifying, right? So then in my head, I'm like, all right, I probably got about 10 minutes before I get kicked out of here. I better take a shower, right? What? Yeah, yeah. So I jump in the shower, you guys, right? And I'm in the shower, and, in my, and then I'm in the shower, in my head, I'm having this thought. I'm like, oh man, when I get out of this shower, without question, the CIA and the Nazis are gonna be here to take me away, and it's just gonna get really hairy. The only way for me to possibly get out of this is for me to pretend to be crazy, right? <laughs> like, I have to, like, play the fool, you know, King Leah style, right? So I jump out of the shower, I put on you know, the, uh, the, the bathrobe, yeah, the shower cap. Mascara around my eyes, lipstick on my lips, and I jump out into the room. And right as I jump out, all like hotel staff, security's in there, the Garda, which is the Irish police, the family, and I'm like, all right, John, it's go time. And then just in like show tune style, replete with jazz hands, I start going, This is my room, this is my room, this is my room. Oh, listen to my tune, this is my room. When I'm in my room, I like to sing my tune. This is my room, of all the rooms. This is the one that I call my room. Right? So I did that. And they just all just like stared at me in silence with their mouths like this, like, uh. <laughs> and then they just looked back and forth at each other. And then they just started slow clapping, just like. <laughs> and then it got more and more and more, and they were just uproariously applauding for me. Actually, no, that didn't happen. I got arrested and went to jail for a week. Um, Cloverhill Prison in Ireland, right? That's what happened, yeah, yeah. And that is another story. Uh, but I will tell you this, these days, man, uh, one of the most treacherous things if somebody, if you have a mental illness, right? It's one of these last things that's still stigmatized and it's, it's the sort of thing where you, when you lose your marbles for a while and then get them back, it's a very strange thing because it's hard to possibly fathom how you could have believed some of these things. And there's a lot of self-loathing and a lot of, uh, of self-hate, a lot of embarrassment. And even though you're, you know, your friends and family and people will forgive you and you realize that it's not your fault, that it's chemical, it's still very hard to figure out how to forgive yourself and how to cultivate a sense of 
self-worth again in your life, you know? And I feel very, I feel very lucky that I've been able, um, you know, to, through being creative and through uh, doing comedy and stuff like that, I've been able to talk about these stuff so honestly publicly, and it's really helped me and healed me and stuff like that. And I, uh, I don't feel like a pitiable person. I don't feel like somebody that people have to walk on eggshells around. I don't feel like somebody who is letting myself become a victim of this thing. And, I'm, and, I'm, and things, are, things are good, man. I'm touring around the country doing comedy. I'm on an international television show called Redacted Tonight that's doing some of the, the best, most relevant political satire around, and I'm so proud of what I get to do. You know, we cover all these stories that are not in, in the mainstream. So I'm just going to say this. Like, if it ever does come about that the, uh, the CIA and the Nazis decide to get together to try to stifle the evolution of human consciousness, because of my job, I'll be amongst the first to know. So don't you worry about a goddamn thing. I'm John F. O'Donnell. Thank you so much. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is, of course, Elvis Presley behind me now. It's the Junkie XL remix. And now I'm going to read a huge list of places we're appearing next on April 16, 2016. We are back at the Nerdist showroom in Los Angeles. And on the 24th, we are back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Now, on April 27th, we're in Vancouver. And on April 28th, Seattle, Washington. On April 30th, we're in Portland, Oregon. And then on May 15th, we are in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, the pitch deadline for that is April 17th. So if you want to get us your stories on the theme of respect, folks in Boston, pitch us at aristoshow.com slash submissions uh, then on uh, let's see what's next but well on the 20th of may is our big show at the bell house where we're going to be celebrating the state's new book my old comedy group the state we have a book coming out it's an oral history of the group Kerry Kenny Silver will be there. Janine Garofalo will be there. Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter may be there. There will be interviews with various state members uh, via video, maybe some other special guests. It's going to be a big deal. So that is at the Bell House on May 20th. On May 21st, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, the theme that night is repugnant, and the pitch deadline is April 23rd. Then we have a date that is yet to be announced in Pittsburgh in June. The theme is mesmerized, but you can still pitch us for it. Philly, we are there on June 17th. The theme is disgusted. The pitch deadline's May 20th. June 25th, we are in St. Louis, Missouri. The theme is worried. The pitch deadline's May 28th. 
July 8th, we are in San Francisco. The theme is resonant. The pitch deadline is June 10th. To learn about our training, our one-on-one training over Skype, our video courses that you can take in your own time, our in-person workshops, go to thestorystudio.org. Tell us what you thought about the stories on the listen pages at risk-show.com. You can also support us at the support us page there or shop for the older episodes that are no longer free on iTunes at our shop. There is, of course, also the submissions page at risk-show.com. No matter where you are in the world, you can pitch us your story at risk-show.com slash submissions. You can always find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And finally, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This is my room of all the rooms. This is the one that I call my room.